And now, it's time to sit back and enjoy the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Broadcast. Attention, people of Earth. Do not resist us. All who oppose us shall be annihilated. We command the most powerful army of monsters in the universe. They are sure to defeat your Earth monsters. All those who are hearing this are now under the control of the Earth Destruction Directive. 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 Hello, everyone, and welcome to Earth Destruction Directive. I am your host, as always, Mr. Luke Giaconetti. I would like to thank everyone for downloading and listening to the show today. And we have a very good show for you today, and I do mean we in a very real and legally binding sense, as I am not on my own this time out. I have a very special guest with me. So let's all give, please give a warm Earth Destruction Directive welcome to Mr. Anthony Wendell. Hello, Anthony. Thanks for having me. Oh, no problem. Uh, um, you know, it, it's very interesting that uh, we... We kind of crossed paths mostly because we both uh, were involved with Monster Kid Radio because uh, my brother has appeared on that show on more than one occasion and I actually appeared on it in one segment and I know you're a contributor to Monster Kid Radio so that's kind of was the impetus for you reaching out to me here. Yep, I kept hearing uh, your brother's plug for the Bots, Bugs, and Babe podcast and I was thinking, man, these guys would be uh, interesting to talk with, so... Here we are. Mm. And uh, as, as you know, you, you at least have not mistaken us for each other yet, which happens way more frequently than you might imagine. But uh, <laughs> so Anthony is, uh, is joining us tonight. And when we were going back and forth about what to talk about, the first thing um, that, that came up is the movie we are going to be talking about tonight, which is uh, from 1995, Gamera Guardian of the Universe, uh, which is a, a very well-regarded and popular giant monster movie. But before we get into that, Anthony, uh, let me ask you, how did you become a fan of giant monsters? And I, I owe it all to my grandma. Back in 1992, yes, I know the exact date when I became a giant monster fan because my grandma took me to the video store. Now, for those of you that don't know, the video store was this place where we got these things called tapes, <laughs> which was predating... DVDs, and we'd take them home and watch them, and then we'd have to make sure to rewind them, that, yeah. or else we'd have to pay an additional fee. You know, I remember when I first got my DVD player, my then-girlfriend, now-wife, that was like her favorite thing. She's like, what, you don't have to rewind them? That's fantastic! <laughs> oh, yeah. But, on I remember that on that Saturday, uh, I the Sunday of, I'm actually looking it up here, of February 19th, 1994. I, because I was a big fan of Lois and Clark, The New Adventures of Superman. And I actually remember the episode that was on that Sunday. It was actually called The Founding. And, but that Saturday, I, my grandma, the woman who let me watch the House of Drip Blood when I was two and a half. Oh, nice. <laughs> That's, that's I, love that, I love that woman. <laughs> I love that so much. Took me to the video store, and I had heard of the word Godzilla from Tiny Toons and Looney Tunes. I guess because even back then he was a cultural icon. Oh, yeah. And I asked my family, 
what is Godzilla? And they're like, it's a giant dinosaur that breathes fire. I'm like, that sounds amazing. So there I am in the video store. I'm, at this point, I would have been 11 years old. And there, on the shelves, was Godzilla versus Monster Zero. Oh, man. That's a great one to start with, too. That, it, you know, it changed my life. Oh, absolutely. I'm sure it did, yeah. See, that was that was one of the first four, and I've told this story on the podcast numerous times, listeners, so you're going to have to bear with me a little bit. But th- this is one that my dad, who was an early VHS adopter, he uh, made a tape with Godzilla King of the Monsters, Ghidorah the Three-Headed Monster, uh, Rodan, and Monster Zero. And so I watched those four movies over and over and over. So I, yeah... I, I understand totally about Monster Zero. That's, that's such a great one to start with. Oh, yes, it really was. And for me, uh, you mentioned Rodan. As a kid, uh, Rodan was... You know how some people get afraid of uh, the water watching Jaws? Right. It was a mixture of Rodan and War of the Gargantua that made me afraid of going in the water. Well, I grew up on a lake. I hadn't seen Jaws yet. And then I watched Rodan, saw the scene with the Mega Nulons where the diver, where the miners are dragged under the water by the Mega Nulons and was shaken to say the least because this is my first on death scene of someone dying in water. Right. And then I finished that movie, and the next movie after it, on a TNT, Monster Vision, mm-hmm. one of the greatest lost treasures of all oh, time. Yes. Fantastic stuff. Uh, <clears throat> one showed War of the Gargantua, which is actually, Rodan and War of the Gargantua is available as a double feature DVD. I highly recommend yes. the list pick them up. Great pickup. But as I'm watching that, I then bore, bore witness to the Gargantua that actually ate humans chasing down a group of sailors that had survived the ship he had just wrecked with the intent of eating them. And it was disturbing, to say the very least, for me. (laughs) I found myself uh, tepid of going back in the water for the majority of the summer, actually. Can't really blame you. I mean, you know. That, that, that scene in the mineshaft in Rodan, I mean, that, that's, that's legit scary stuff, you know? Like, the first, the first 20 minutes or so of Rodan is a straight-up horror movie with the Mega Neuron, and then the guy's getting dragged down into the flooded mine. I mean, that creeped me out when I was a kid. I'm right there with you. And, oh, yeah. Uh, it's funny you mentioned War of the Gargantuas, because we'll get to it later when we're talking about the movie, but I actually do have a War of the Gargantuas reference in this movie. I don't know if it's a direct reference or... Maybe it's just one of those weird fan connections, but War of the Gargantuas is in my notes, so that's uh, that that's uh, very very topical of you. Who who can't be topical? That's what I always ask. Uh, <laughs> all right, well we are going to take a a really quick break, and then we're going to be right back. And Anthony and I are going to talk about Gamera, Guardian of the Universe, right here on Earth Destruction Directive. <laughs> Prepare for a spine-tingling, nerve-shattering podcast featuring all your favorite monsters. You won't believe your ears when you listen to Monster Monster Kid Kid Radio. Hear your host, Derek M. Cook, and his ever-rotating stable of guests discuss your favorite classic and sometimes not-so-classic monster movies. 
Subscribe to Monster Kid Radio through iTunes or Stitcher. Or visit monsterkidradio.net before the next weekly episode of Monster Monster Kid Kid Radio. Go through the archives for interviews with Sarah Karloff, Victoria Price, and Joel Hodgson. Listen to discussions about movies like Creature from the Black Lagoon, Island of Terror, and King Kong. And don't forget convention coverage from Monster Bash and the HP Lovecraft Film Festival. Classic Monsters. Modern Talk. And the head of Rondo Hatton. Only on Monster Monster Kid Radio! Alright, we are back here on Earth Destruction Directive. Gamera, Guardian of the Universe, was released in Japan on March 11th, 1995. It was released on VHS in the United States by ADV in 1997, and then played extensively on HBO uh, in 1997, even I think even into 1998. Uh, I hold in my hands a VHS copy of Gamera Guardian of the Universe. Now, my VHS copy was actually one that was taped off of HBO that I had for many, many years. My good friend, Mr. Adam Tebow, recently said to me, he goes, Luke, I got this big box of VHS tapes. You want them? And I'm like, heck yeah, I want a box of VHS tapes. I, lo- I love VHS. So in that box was actually an ADV copy of Gamera Guardian of the Universe. So I'm going to hold that up to the mic for everybody to see. This is the, you know, my my fresh used copy <laughs> of uh, Gamera Guardian Universe on VHS. So very, you know, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a VHS fanboy. So I, I saw this and I was like, oh my gosh. So that made me very happy. <laughs> I, I mean, I have it in other formats, but you know, you can't beat the original, right? Our, uh, Amen to that. <laughs> I, I do. You know, what's funny is that my dad, like I said, was an early uh, VHS adopter. So I've always kind of been into VHS culture. And I have a lot of movies on VHS just from when my father would get them on DVD. He'd be like, Luke, you want this? Could VHS copy? And I'd be like, sure. So I've got tons of commercial VHS tapes still. And movies well, that I have not rebought because I'm like, well, I got a commercial copy. And I got like four VCRs hooked up in my house right now. <laughs> well, in all fairness, VHS does hurt more when you throw it at people. Absolutely. You can also, uh, I also have a really cool craft for making notepads out of VHS boxes, you know, so. Maybe we'll do a. Oh, really? Uh, that sounds awesome. Yeah, maybe we'll do like a DIY version, a hand, uh, a crafty Pinterest type uh, special guiding episode at some point, but uh, not not tonight, folks. But anyway, so our writer is Kazunori Ito. Uh, the music is by Ko Otani. Uh, the special effects are by Shinji Haguchi. Now, if that name sounds familiar, you might know him because uh, Haguchi did the special effects on the remake of Submersion of Japan. He also directed the two Tokusatsu Attack on Titan films, and probably best well known, he is also the director of Shin Godzilla, which uh, you know caused uh, quite a bit of stir uh, here on the uh, internets when that got the uh, wide release, not the wide release, the wide release in Japan, and then the limited release here in the U.S., which uh, was a big treat for me. So uh, th- this is where he first got to start was doing the effects in the uh, in these Heisei Gamera films. Our director is Shisuke Kaneko, and again, that's another name should sound familiar. We covered his Godzilla entry uh, way back in Hallowed Antiquity a couple of years ago, which was uh, Godzilla, Mothra, King Ghidorah, all-out giant monsters attack, which another, uh, you know, kind of dark retelling of the Godzilla mythos. Our producers are Hiroyuki Kato, Shigeru Ono, Yasuyoshi Tokuma, Sutomu Suchikawa, 
and Seiji Urushido. And I've got here, I have the synopsis from Wikipedia, so I'm just going to read through the synopsis, and then we'll just break in with our thoughts and comments. Sound good to you? Works for me. All right. Our story begins when a ship carrying plutonium collides with a floating atoll off the eastern coast of the Philippines, one of many incidents occurring throughout the area. As the anomalous formation approaches Japan, a team of scientists led by Noya Kusanagi discover comma-looking amulets and a stone slab covered in runes on the atoll. During the investigation, the atoll suddenly quakes, destroying the slab and throwing the scientists into the ocean. One member of the team, Marine Officer Yoshinari Yonamori, sees the eyes and tusk of a giant turtle. Now, you had mentioned something to me about that Wikipedia synopsis that I had never realized. So why don't you share that with our listeners, because I found this fascinating. Well, you say the word turtle, right? but I've been noted, I've, from listening to other podcasts and inter- other interviews, Director Kaneko makes it a point to point out no one ever refers to Gamera as a turtle, which once you think about it on the grand scheme of things, it makes the movie much more in-depth and a wonder to behold. You'll notice, dear audience, as we keep going, we'll be pointing out just the attention to detail that goes into this film because once you start to unpack it this whole trilogy is insane with the amount of detail they go into but with this with the the fact that they say turtle in the synopsis they never actually refer to Gamera as a turtle director Kaneko has made it a point to go on record and, and point out the idea that this is a world where turtles don't exist you never see a turtle they never refer to Gamera as a turtle This is a world in which turtles don't exist. Which, once you take that idea and apply it to the to the film's villain, the Gauss, you realize they're referred to as giant birds at first. Right. Which helps to go to the idea of adds to the idea of why would the government be willing to protect the Gauss, but are willing to destroy Gamera, who seems to be willing helping to protect. Mm -hmm. It's shown, but once you think about it. With, since they've never seen a turtle before, Gamera appearing out of nowhere, looking so weird and menacing, would be scary to them. Mm-hmm. They don't know what it is. They have no way to compare it to anything. But a but a bird, or at least a giant bird, they have a basis for us. Right. They think the Gauss is some kind of an extinct species and they want to try to protect it. But Gamera is some kind of anomaly that just that they can only be afraid of. It's this it's little attention to details like this that makes this trilogy such so interesting to watch over and over again. Mm-hmm. I can't I keep finding myself every time I rewatch this trilogy finding something new. Oh yeah, absolutely. I found uh, I found this connection I realized after watching it for the for getting ready for this recording and the previous time when I was showing it to a buddy as we go into Asagi's room, for the longest time, I was trying to look for some kind of anime reference. I was thinking, right. oh, it's the 90s. She'll probably have a Doraemon plushie or a Sailor Moon figurine. And I kept on looking for that. And then all of a sudden, my buddy points out, hey, she's got the Japanese version of My Fair Lady on the back <laughs> of the door, the movie poster. I'm like, oh, my God, I have watched this film ten times and not realized yes, that. Yes, it, it's so weird, but 
maybe she's like a theater geek or something, right? Or a musical geek, right? <laughs> or, and you can unpack that from little details like that, but it's a type of film series where you want to, you can rewatch it over and over again and find little, uh, Easter eggs like that over and over again, and they are such a joy to behold. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, trying to think, cause, you know, oddly enough, even though, um, you know, Toho was not obviously involved in the original Gamera series. Toho did distribute these movies. So I wonder if they would have, you know, weaseled in a Hamtaro plush instead of a Doraemon, you know? But <laughs> they did well, love you know, their Hamtaro uh, over at Toho. <laughs> well, you know what happened with uh, in Japan with the releases of the Millennium series, right? They were paired up with Hamtaro shorts. Yes, and, 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 uh, and they were actually on the tickets. Yes, and they to the point the... that there was much speculation that that was there to help get people to go see the Godzilla movies because sales were so down that, hey, we better put Hamtaro. They like this this hamster guy a lot more than they like Godzilla lately. <laughs> see, there you go. Dor- Doraemon versus Hamtaro in like, a, you know, get two giants of them fighting in a city. I'd, I'd pay to see that. <laughs> in an instant. The, uh, well, Doraemon's got that, you know, blocked up. He's Gadget Cat from the future, man. You don't mess with Doraemon. But anyway, I'm, I'm, I'm getting off topic. The, the thing I like about this, this early part with the moving atoll is that it reminds me of like that kind of uh, standard Daikaiju uh, element of a natural phenomenon that, that isn't behaving right. You know, atolls don't move. That always reminds me of, oddly enough, like in GMK, they talk about there's an earthquake with a moving epicenter. You know, that, and we know that it means, okay, there's a monster that's moving, uh, under the ground, that's, but it's reading on the seismographs like that's the epicenter and it's moving. So we know something's weird. Here we get this atoll, which again, they have no reason to suspect it's anything but an atoll that maybe they, you know, has just not been, uh, uh, mapped out by a cartographer previous to this. But it's, it's moving, which obviously makes it weird right there. And that, you know, leads into the discussions very early on about the continents of Mu and Atlantis. And I, I'm a sucker for ancient civilizations. You know, I'm a big fan of like Robert E. Howard and Edgar Rice Burroughs and so kind of lost world type stuff like that. So I, I'm, I'm always a sucker for, uh, for that type of stuff. And, and it's neat because, you know, I, I really like when, like, um, Atragon uses Mu, and then I was just talking about Mu in the context of an Ultraman episode, uh, which involved uh, a civilization locking away uh, ancient monsters. And I just like to see it because it, you know, Mu is very much, from the 10,000-foot view, the eastern version of the Atlantis myth. And we've done so much with Atlantis here in the West that it's always, you know, it's one of those things that, oh, you know, sometimes the cultures are very different, but sometimes there are things that match up pretty nicely, you know. So I, I like that a lot, and we'll get into this a little bit more, but, you know, that how that ties into the revised origin of Gamera and Gauss, I, I, I'm a big fan of that as well. So I, I like this opening, because it's suitably mysterious, you know, that there's... They're, they don't spend a lot of time talking. They get right down to business of, of stuff happening. There's a lot of, uh, you know, you, you had kind of mentioned, it's a lot of showing and not telling in these films for the most part. Which is actually brought up in the very next segment. Mm-hmm. So, meanwhile, ornithologist Mayumi Nagamine investigates a village in the Goto Archipelago reportedly attacked by a, quote, giant bird, like we were saying earlier. While Nagamine is initially skeptical of the claims, she is horrified upon discovering human remains in giant bird pellet. 
And here's more of the show don't tell. Mm-hmm. We don't know for sure that these are going to have human moraines. They never like show like a hand or anything. All they show is Nagamine looking at a pen, realizing it. This is my colleague's pen. And then two seconds later, what comes out of the goo but a pair of glasses? Right. Yeah, it's and it's it's you know it, it's an, initially it's a little funny because that scene always reminds me of Jurassic Park, which was two years before this, where you got uh, you know Laura Dern digging in the giant pile of uh, um, Triceratops dung, and you got Jeff Goldblum with one of the greatest lines in American cinematic history. That is one big pile of shit. But, <laughs> but so it's initially played a little bit for laughs, but then it's like because it's like a bird pellet, and then like you said, you have the 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 inorganic material, the stuff that the Gauss couldn't digest when they ate this dude, and then it it brings it into sharp relief. Both her horror and our kind of dawning realizations, like oh no, that you you get what that means, and it's again, it 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 shifts very quickly from this kind of ridiculous image of this giant pile of bird crap to oh no what's in it you know so yeah I, I that's a very nice like i said good use of the show don't tell exploring the nearby forest her team encounters and then successfully prevents three bird-like creatures from attacking another village to prevent further attacks nagamine agrees to aid the government in capturing the giant birds the creatures are lured to the fukaoka dome baseball stadium where two of the three are successfully captured. Now, I want to just jump in here. The uh, This is a real stadium that they're going to. This is the Fukuoka Dome, which is the current home to the Fukuoka SoftBank Hawks, who were formerly the Dai Hawks of the, um, Major, League, the you know, Major Leagues in Japan. They're part of the Pacific League. And, you know, it, to me, it's I, I mentioned a little bit earlier with Atlantis and Mu and things that, you know, when we look at these films, especially from Japan, but anywhere in the East, the, the cultural aspects that we see a lot of times are very different from what we're familiar with here in the West. But baseball is one of those things that, that goes both, both in both directions because baseball still remains to this day hugely popular, uh, both as a professional spectator sport and also with as a youth sport in Japan. So I, I really like this and I like seeing the use of the real Fukuoka Dome, which I believe at the time was the only stadium in Japan with a retractable roof like that. Um, you can imagine a scene like this taking place in the United States, maybe in uh, Mercedes-Benz Stadium down in Atlanta, where the, the where the Atlanta Falcons play and Atlanta United FC, which has the giant irising roof like that. So you can kind of you know make make that connection there. But I just really like that. I like and I like using you know uh, the the real stadium to shoot a lot of these scenes where they're going to lure the gals out. And again, a nod. And again, once more, the nod to the show don't tell. As they're trying to figure out what to do and you, their idea of using the dome, they're taking, oh, Nagamine is taking a break with her investigation with, uh, the local police chief that was under the investigation, Osako, and Osako just sees the newspaper headline of talking about the wolves winning, presents it to her, and she's just with a, with her mouth full of sandwiches, just like, hmm? Like, what, what I, I don't get what, what's going on, but it's just a perfect, Let's use the dome, and the transition is perfect. Sports page to the uh, place to use. Not a lot of, and then just a, just a half second uh, throwaway dialogue of the roof can close. Right. Per this, 
making it, yes, this is the perfect place to stage an operation to capture a large uh, bird-like creature. Yes. And so we get the full reveal of Gauss at right around the 13-minute mark. So there's not a lot. They're not playing the we're going to hide the monster and reveal it later game in this. That's just not the type of movie this is. I don't have a particular problem with that style of approach. I remember in 2014 when the legendary Godzilla came out, there was a lot of kind of back and forth about, oh, it took Godzilla too long to show up. It's like, well, you know, it's actually very similar to the original, but we're not going to get into that. Here, no such questions. I mean, we're not even 15 minutes in. We're in the first reel, and we got the full reveal of the uh, the, re- the revival version, so to speak, of Gauss. They are said to have a wingspan of 15 meters, which is about 50 feet, and they are portrayed here as uh, as through puppetry. There are uh, some marionettes and some rod-style puppets, and I think they're, they are really wonderfully realized. You know, they got the wonderfully flapping wings. They don't fall victim to the really slow flapping like we got sometimes with, like, Mothra and Batra a few years earlier. Um, the head and neck is fully articulated in the in the puppet and gives it a, a wide range of motion. And, you know, it, it is capable of some quick movement, so it kind of sells that, that bird-like motion. And I liked also that they kept the completely flat head that was one of the design elements that was always memorable to me of the original Gauss. So what do you, what do you think about the, uh, the update to the small Gauss here? The fact is, this puppetry is so... You talk about the, sh- about the uh, not hiding the monster, but at the same time... If you, with making your monster frightening without, uh, even though he is, it is being displayed, then you really have achieved something. Mm-hmm. And they do that wonderfully with the Gauss. One of the best uh, moments as they're first introduced is after they land, they, in the stadium, they start to consume the hor- the animal carcasses that are left out for their, uh, as their bait. Right. And, through a mixture of like a deformed bird, it has it's shown to have teeth and rips off the flesh. But then, like a bird, it, so it can chew. But then, like a bird, it will put its head up uh, straight vertically, so it can gulp down the food. It and it's just it just chewing is for it, it makes it seem menacing because it's showing just that it what how it would consume its victims if it was able to get a hold of them. Yeah. It it's it it has a lot of personality and character in just that motion like you described of them ripping and rending the fish pieces apart and then shaking it down their gullet essentially because they don't have a tongue. Yeah. <laughs> I mean that that's you know. So it's like it 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 really is again and it's hard to do that sometimes with puppetry, you know. Uh I we covered Son of uh Son of Godzilla a few months back and I had put over the effects crew for the performance they were able to get out of the marionettes for Kamakuras and Kuamanga. And th- this even takes it further than that, because while those were credible monster performances, these are almost like credible animal performance. Now, as you know, obviously, yes, they are monsters. There's not, not a question about that. Even, um, you know, Nagamine says at one point, these aren't birds. Like she gets a little, you know, almost offended as an ornithologist, I guess. But, they they behave in such a naturalistic way that it, it like I said it really sells the illusion of life on on these guys and uh, you know really drives home the effectiveness of this scene because the technical parts of it work really well 
So it, it, like I said, it just continues that the illusion of life, which is, is fantastic. After the two of the three are successfully captured, the last one escapes to the harbor, where it is killed by the giant turtle encountered by Yonamore and the scientists. The remaining birds escape before the turtle reaches the stadium. Now, this is the grand and epic reveal of Gamera, right around the 30-minute mark or so of the film. He has this fantastic, dramatic entrance out of the harbor, rising up, and we hear his iconic roar. You know, the, the screeching, sort of uh, high-pitched uh, roar that Gamera had uh, all throughout the, the Showa era, with, with some variation, of course. But they, uh, I really like here that they, they make a First off, they make a big deal out of Gamera's arrival after we got just a tiny glimpse of him very early in the film. So he makes his true hero's entrance into his film. And they, they you know, really, they, they you know, the, the producers of this film could have gone a different direction with his, his roar. They could have tried to make it sound meaner or tougher or, you know, just generally a lower pitched, something with more bass in it. But they, they kept the roar. And, it's, and to me, that is very one of the more identifiable aspects of the Gamera series is his roar, even more so than any of the other monsters. And so I'm really glad they kept it. So what do you think about the big arrival of uh, our hero Gamera? Well, I think they alter, I think I got to correct you just a little bit and say that they, I think they alter the roar just a little bit at the end. They just make the pitch just a little bit more nail on the chalkboard Mm -hmm. sounding to give it just a bit more, of an intimidation factor, but otherwise, yes, it they it's just more like you know a slight alteration you don't realize, but does volumes because in it still feels so uh, terror it, it, like terror inducing. It's you know yes, you're eventually going to find out he's the good guy, but his roar always sounds like I'm good, but don't get in front of me. <laughs> and that's the, and that's what the way he's portrayed as soon as he gets out, he is there to take out the gauss, but you know, he doesn't want to fly just yet because he just woke up. He's trying to save some energy. So he decides, Oh, well only one way to get to him. And he just starts tromping through town. Yeah. And through perspective, uh, yeah, at the moment, despite the fact that gauss have killed a lot of people at this point, they have, uh, the property damage has been, you know, not, has been contained on an island that didn't get a lot of coverage. Here he's trampling, Gamera's trampling through a major metropolitan, and everyone and their mother can, uh, the news crew's getting the footage, and everyone is afraid of this, again, because there are no turtles in this world, this strange, destructive being, which is now destroying the town. Oh, yeah. I mean, you think about if you've never seen a turtle before. They're weird-looking animals. Especially, you know, you get like a like a big tortoise or even like one of my favorites, you get like an alligator snapping turtle. They're weird-looking. And so to have, you know, if you've never seen one for context, Gamera just looks, he's just, just some crazy sea monster. So absolutely. And I, I, you mentioned him stomping through a major metropolitan area. As, I, as, as we discussed, they're actually in Fukuoka. And just by... Again, I don't know if it was coincidence or maybe Toho was being cute or whatever it is. Um, the Godzilla film released right before this, which was Godzilla vs. Space Godzilla, which came out in the winter of 1994, also features a major set piece in Fukuoka. That's where the Space Godzilla uses the tower to create his uh, 
uh, all his crystals, his like forest of crystals. So the whole, all the whole end of that film takes place in Fukuoka. So bad year <laughs> for Fukuoka, bad calendar year, I guess. <laughs> oh man, they just got done rebuilding the place. Yeah, it's like. Yeah, uh, it, it, it's like Robin Hood men in tights. Like every time they make a Robin Hood movie, they burn our village to the ground. <laughs> Go find leave someplace us alone, else. Mel Brooks. <laughs> oh man, but uh, yeah, but this this whole bit is is just very wonderfully realized because just the uh, the effects, uh, like the suit effects, and then the composite effects. Of you know actually marrying the live action plates with the the suitmation plates and all that, they're they're in line absolutely in line with the stuff that Toho was doing at this time. But it's uh, on a on a you know just out of Dai that was just you know that was I think that more than anything amazed people just to see them putting out just really high quality suitmation effects. Um, you know, when, you know, the die, the original Showa cameras, I mean, they're, they're charming and there are some good stuff in them, but they were always a little bit schlockier than even Toho at their, at their cheapest in the early seventies. The Amara films still looked, you know, below that a little bit just on their quality here. I mean, these are, these are just top notch stuff and there, there's some composites like when, um, uh, when Gamera's looking into the stadium, which are just, I mean, it's, it's, um, it's great. Absolutely just great matching work. Really wonderful. The scale there is insane with how good it is. Just as he's looking in, there isn't a single moment of bad transition in, with the scale that you think, wait, shouldn't that be bigger? Or shouldn't that be like, no, there is not a single beat of disbelief in terms of the scaling throughout the entire trilogy. Mm-hmm. They are insanely consistent with the sizes that they use. Right. And to me, what always was impressive about that is that includes things that change size, like the Gauss. We'll see the Gauss do in this film or creatures that have multiple elements to them and multiple forms, like in the, the alien Legion from the second film, Advent of Legion, because there's multiple you know, uh, there there's different organisms that make up the whole of Legion, and each one is is different, and they're all consistent across that. You don't always get that, even even in you know e- even in the modern Godzilla films, you can sometimes get where it's like, okay, well, it's a little bit wrong there, but you know it's close enough. But here, yeah, it's there's I, I have there's nothing that's ever jumped out at me and says no that that doesn't look right. Everything scales very nicely, and the other. Uh, part of that particular shot that I always like is we see plenty of live action footage, actual real footage of the Fukuoka dome. Uh, we actually see the roof closing at one point, you know, some, some kind of technical type footage. And so when, so we, so we've seen the real Fukuoka dome. And then when Gamera is you know saying, Hey, what's going on down here? When he's looking in, into the dome, the miniatures match up so nicely to the, the, the reference plates. And it, it really, again, sells that illusion of reality that, you know, we've seen the real Fukuoka Dome, and now we have the miniature Fukuoka Dome, but it's it, it looks so much like the original because the modelers just did such a bang-up job on the little details that, you know, it's, it's, it's not a scene with, you know, that particular shot. It's not an action shot or anything like that, but it's, it's such a wonderful little piece of, of suitmation work and composite work all coming together. It's gorgeous. Mm. 
And uh, so outside, Gamera takes out the uh, the one Gauss that did not get caught, and he takes it down hard. So this is the kind of the first uh, glimpse that we get that you know he's you know uh, he's here to chew bubble gum and kick ass, and he's all out of bubble gum. So <laughs> good times. <laughs> That'd be a really big piece of bubble gum, anyway. But, oh yeah, uh, way bigger than even like Bubblelicious. I'm just saying. So. Um, all right, so after translating the, ru- the ruins, Kusanagi explains to Yonamori and his daughter Asagi, ding, 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 important character, pay attention, important character, that the giant turtle is called Gamera and the birds are Gauss. When Asagi touches one of the stone amulets, she inadvertently forms a spiritual bond with Gamera. Kusanagi also tries to convince the government that the Gauss are the real threat, but they remain focused on Gamera due to the destruction he has caused. All right, so this, we get the introduction of kind of the mythology of this series. And I mean that both in the modern use of the word mythology. Every show or film series has its own, air quotes up to the microphone, mythology nowadays. But in a very real and literal sense, this is the mythology from the ancient civilizations that are the origin of Gamera and Gauss. And, And this is a big change because... Even at their, you know, mo- most ridiculous, and I, I don't mean ridiculous as a derogatory term. The, the Showa G- Gamera films have some pretty ridiculous aspects to them, but I love them anyway. Uh, even at its most ridiculous, the Showa Gamera films really were science fiction. You know, Gamera was a monster awakened by uh, an atomic bomb explosion in the Antarctic. You know, he fought. Um, other, he fought ancient monsters from Earth and aliens from outer space. Uh, they act, you know, in Super Monster Gamera, there's a whole race of superhero space women, which we're not going to talk about. So, to me, that's always a very, you know, kind of, you know, pretty firmly planted on the science fiction side of things. But introducing all of the mythological aspects and the idea of this ancient civilization, it introduces a fantastical element to this that does a really good job of differentiating this just enough from the originals, but also, at the same time, while staying true to some of the themes of the original that we'll get into as far as Gamera's role. So, what did you think about the the kind of nudge in the direction towards a more fantastical storytelling? It's it's interesting because they mix, they showcase that Gamera is mythical, but at the same time, they make it a point to bring in real-world science to explain some things, Mm -hmm. such as showcasing later to show how uh, much of a threat the Gauss are. They they show that they found out how many chromosomes it has and how it can reproduce asexually, Mm -hmm. meaning, but at the same time, they are able to explain away how these things happened through the mystical element and going back to the idea of the ancient civilization of Atlantis and Mu, which would have the fantastical technology to be able to create something. Mm. And it's a perfect melding that doesn't detract one way or another and just keeps the story flowing near perfectly. Right. And adding that, you know, again, fantastical element, it allows Asagi, who... She's not a kid, I mean, she's a teenager, but the youth character, the ute, as we say sometimes down here, uh, character, to be brought into the story 
in a way that makes a lot more sense. You know, the um, I, I had a friend of mine, she used to say that apparently in Japan, um, you know, authority must go backwards because according to movies, if you're a kid, you can just march into a government office and start giving orders and they'll listen to you, right? In a show, a gamma movie. But here she has a, you know, by adding that metaphysical aspect where she is connected with Gamera uh, through the amulet, that allows, um, you know, them to bring in the younger character into the story in a way that is not, uh, it, does, it doesn't kind of do, it's like, oh, geez, you know, the, the, there's a kid here because there's a kid here. Now she's here because, okay, there's a connection there, and so that she has a legitimate reason to be involved in the story and it's not you know not, even though her dad objects to it and all that which to me is more um it, it's easier to buy than the old well we're you know us two kids we're the ones that are the real heroes here type of thing which worked well in a kids movie but this i think is aiming for a more general audience which they which they are able to achieve thanks to again so much good show don't tell you see the you see the amulet activate in her hand, and then you cut to later scenes where she has the same uh, she has the same injuries as Gamera does. Mm-hmm. She has realized that the that the jewel gives her a connection to Gamera, but she doesn't take the time to have a moral crisis of what she should do. She realizes if I can use this, I can use this to help to save people by being the bridge between humanity and Gamera. Mm-hmm. It's, and it's a beautiful thing, and she she, t- she takes the role of a priestess, which is what they refer to her as, as what she's essentially doing by in the film, and it plays out so well without a lot of explanation. Mm-hmm. They, so they call her the priestess after she's already taken the role. They don't present it as, if you hold this, you will be the priestess, and then dole out the responsibilities behind it. Instead, she has priested together, and she has taken it upon herself to move forward and be a very mature character despite her age. It's a glorious bit of show-don't-tell and an internal character motivation. Right. And we do get to see a little bit of Japanese bureaucracy, as you referred to earlier, that, uh, you know, they want to continue to go after Gamera despite the Gauss, you know, eating people. I mean, just put that, you know, put a pin in that and think about that one for a minute. They're literally e-people. But no, Gamera is the bigger threat here. So, um, you know, it, I, I think it's, you know, it, it's, it's, it's one of the things that became, I think, more well-known here in the West, um, just the, the level and kind of legendary status of Japanese government bureaucracy and the level of frustration that that creates for kind of the, your average Japanese citizen. I think we can identify with that in the West, but they take it to a whole new level. <laughs> at least, at least when in, in a film, I've, I've never, you know, I've, I'm not an expat or anything, so I can't say for sure, but I can tell you that the filmmakers certainly don't think very highly of the Japanese bureaucracy and they certainly don't in this film. Right. <laughs> But, uh, okay, so, now working together to investigate the creatures, Kusanagi, Yonamore, and Nagamine witness another Gauss attack at the Kiso mountain range. Nagamine and Yonamore are nearly killed trying to rescue a child, but Gamera arrives in time to save them and kills another Gauss. The last Gauss, however, 
escapes. So this whole set piece at the Kiso Mountains is is just one of the best ones in this movie. And what I really like about this is that the previous scene with, with the Gauss and Gamera took place at night. So while you get good looks at them, they're still lit darkly, so to speak, because it's nighttime. Here, this is right in the middle of the day, and they're out in the open. So we get really good, well-lit looks at both Gauss and Gamera. And the bit where Gamera just comes, you know, stomping in uh, onto the scene, heading towards the Gauss on the bridge, it's it's not a hero shot like his arrival at the harbor, but it's a great moment just to really study this new look for Gamera and see, okay, this is, it's an updated, but it's still, very, you know, very similar to the original design in in concept if not an execution and it, it's just a, a great sequence here just where we get to see everything in just a uh, a very natural setting with a lot of uh, you know sunlight and natural light to emphasize the the new suits and it really adds some great coloring effect i ju- i just remember seeing i still remember the whole gauss puts its head out of the out of the forest it's got some remnants of clothing in its mouth from eating people, and it's just a deep blood red orange color tint to it. And the effect of this is this is a creature that needs to be feared is not lost, which is another compliment to this film series is no creature, despite how much it appears loses its impact. Right. No creature... You never lose the whole, oh, look, that one creature, Gauss is back. Oh, yeah, the Gamera will take care of it. No, the Gauss, the Gauss, no matter... From from movie one through the entire trilogy, you fear them. They never lose the... They never become a uh, minor occurrence. They... If you, if you don't uh, make sure to handle them properly, they will kill you. Right. And that fear is palpable in this, uh, especially in that scene. Yes. The other thing here is that we do get the, and, and they, we actually saw this in the stadium, but we get a much better look at it here, is the new version of Gauss's sonic beam. And rather than simply being just a animated yellow beam, like it was traditionally, the new sonic beam they they go kind of the extra mile with it because we actually see the air being distorted as uh, in my head can and I always kind of figured that this is them re- uh, trying to resonate the frequency to get to the right frequency and then uh, it snaps from this kind of wavy looking air into the solid beam of light which to me again is when they find the correct harmonic that they need and it it solidifies and we don't see it all that often he doesn't like spam it out all that much but again that just kind of adds to it. it it really is a very effective and uh very good update of the original sonic beam what do you think about that i love how they showcase earlier when they're in the dome the effects of the beam they right. showcase how they cut how the gauss use it to uh cut themselves out of the steel cages and they make sure to showcase that the bar, where it hit the bars, it perfectly beveled off the edges as if it was cut by a laser. Mm-hmm. And it just showcased the incredible, finite, destructive power, precise destructive power it would have. If it, whatever it comes into contact with will be sliced apart. 
Yeah, and that, and that is also a good update of a gag from the original film where Gauss is flying and the squadron of fighter jets scramble to attack him and he actually slices the jets in half with the sonic beam. The same idea. It's just, it's such a, it's, it's, it's like a monoblade if you ever played like the old TSR Buck Rogers, you know, a sword that's one molecule thick. That's how precise this cut is. And it, again, them just handling something small and tactile like the bars gets an idea it's like oh crap what's that going to do to you know a military vehicle or what's it going to do to Gamera and we see that in this scene where Gamera comes to rescue our heroes on the bridge and he actually blocks the sonic beam with his hand and them having set that up earlier with the cage you're like oh man that's got to hurt yeah <laughs> it's uh it's a great scene and it's surprising that uh there's no gr- that uh, as he's using his palm to shield uh, the characters as they're on the bridge that none of his blood actually gets onto them because it looks uh, he takes a big hit from uh, Gauss's uh, Gauss's attack and it showcases he is bleeding he is hurt Gamera does not come out of this film uh, you know does the does Luke Skywalker from The Last Jedi brushing off some dust from his shoulder. He, by the end of it, he is, he is beaten, bloodied, and, but still willing to go the distance. Right. And, and go the distance he does, because this is where we get to see, uh, the fireball in all its glory. And, you know, the Gamera traditionally used like a flamethrower, like a literal flamethrower out of his mouth to shoot fire. Whereas now it's a projectile. It's actually a, a, you know, hot searing ball of fire that he launches out. And he, again, much like he took out the first Gauss with extreme prejudice, this one goes down and goes down hard to the fireball attack here. And I'm, I'm a big fan of this. It's one of the, um, you know, one of the, the best changes and updates that they made to the character was not to have the, the flamethrower style attack, but just to go in this, different, very visceral direction. And it really is a uh, great beam in terms of, like, you know, it, unlike unlike the other uh, uh, Heisei attacks, which seem to be just, uh, you know, he can say it just like they just trace the line on and then an explosion happens. Right. They really make sure to showcase that the environment around it is affected. I mean, as the bee, as the ball goes toward Gauss, you see trees shift mm-hmm. and the air start to crackle a little bit from the heat. The again, we know we're, we're probably uh, beating a dead horse at this point, audience, but it's impossible not to gush about the attention to detail because there is so much of it with this film series. Right. Absolutely. You know, I, I think it, it, it's one of those things where so little was expected out of a Gamera remake that it's almost as if that was like a motivation to just go that extra mile on, on the little things like that and really put your best foot forward and your best effort to really make it stand out. And all of it ends up there on the screen. So uh, one one other bit um, that we, we actually... Uh, happened right before this we get the update to gamera's ufo mode and this is wonderful the ufo mode was always 
one of the sillier parts of Gamera's arsenal, if one of his most beloved. But it really, really shines in this film where it really looks like he is turning himself into a flying saucer. He's not just, you know, spinning around, wobbling a little bit. He is whirling around, and it looks really damn cool, I think. It's great because, again, with the attention to detail, they actually showcase that he doesn't just immediately become the saucer. He has to expel enough energy to get himself into the air, and then he can start uh, the whirling effect to achieve momentum. It's it's really it it makes a silly concept like uh, the flying saucer mode in the original seem like if he had collided with anything, he would actually slice it in half thanks to the momentum. Right. Yeah. It, it, like I said, it, it it just and just the speed at which they can get him rotating now because it's been um, augmented with some non-physical effects. It really just, the overall the overall effect visually is just wonderful. So, All right. Meanwhile, Asagi discovers that she suffers the same wounds and fatigue as Gamera due to their shared bond. At Mount Fuji, she witnesses a military strike against Gamera. The attack attracts the final gauss to the scene where it grievously wounds Gamera and forces the turtle to retreat into the ocean. Simultaneously, Asagi suffers a similar wound and passes out from the pain. Kusanagi visits his daughter at the hospital, where Asagi falls into a coma after saying that she and Gamera must rest. And so, so we get the the military going all out against Gamera again, even though he has, you know, they there's even a line at the bridge where it says Gamera saved us all, but you know they don't care. They have, you know, they, they've decided that Gamera is a threat, so they're going to attack him. This whole scene. Is you know just just piling off, just they're they're firing at him with the artillery pieces, they're firing at him with other weapons, and then Gauth shows up and attacks him, and it's like man, Gamera is just getting he's taking a whooping, which is not uncommon in the Gamera series, where usually the first time that Gamera and his foe would tangle, Gamera would be on the losing end, and he'd have to retreat to the ocean, or he'd get frozen, or what have you, and he'd have to rebuild his strength and come back and win in the final reel. So while it's not overly surprising to see Gamera get just pounded on here um, in, in the the kind of the close of the second act, it's uh, it's a little harsh. Now, did you ever see uh, Death Battle? The uh, YouTube series that actually takes two characters and has them fight based on all their stats and who would actually win in the fight? I have not seen that, no. They did Gamera versus Godzilla. Mm. And on top of Godzilla's uh, regenerative factor and uh, a bit more strength with his attacks, they've showcased that in that that Gamera is a second round fighter. Mm-hmm. He will take the hit he will take the hits in the first time he meets his opponent, learn from it, and come back swinging again and win. So that's how Gamera lost against a fight with Godzilla. He would not have the opportunity to have a second round fight. Mm. But in terms of right now, in this scene, this isn't a fight, though. He's chasing after the Gauss, thinking he can take it down, and the it becomes an intervent. It becomes like one of the finest scenes of a competent JSDF correlated attack. I mean, they pound into him, even when 
even the moments where you think he'll be okay, you see him being shelled on on the stomach with uh, mortars. And even though he has a shell there, and even though it probably isn't the most uh, dense part of his uh, armored shell, you see Asagi uh, taking the uh, symbolic uh, effect of feeling the blast, and she's clutching her stomach like she got a gut punch. She Mm -hmm. is... Gamera, despite it looking like he'll be okay from it, he's not okay. He is getting the shot kicked out of him. Right. Not upon him over the fact of what color his blood is. <laughs> but. And, and then add on top of that, when the Gauss shows up and just really, Gauss lays into him. And when that's where we see Asagi get the big wound that is the same cut that, that Gamera receives from Gauss. And that further sells that whole, the spiritual connection between Asagi and Gamera, with Asagi acting as Gamera's priestess uh, among amongst the humans, and that, that again that just continues to sell. If, if she's she's the human face, right? So we can understand her pain and her suffering, and that humanizes Gamera because he because they share the same pain and suffering. So you know what he's going through, and again, like, like you say, he's a second round fighter, so he's got to retreat and go uh, lick his wounds, pro, you know, proverbially speaking. And, and come back in. So, you know, it, it's, it, that was one of the aspects that, that I really thought did a good job of honoring the original, uh, type of the original series was that very idea that that's a way a lot of his fights went. So, yeah. And it, they, and you're right. This is a very good, if you like your military mecha in a, in a, uh, Daikaiju movie, this is a good movie for you. There's, there's some pretty decent real world sort of stuff and some good stock footage. Always good to have some military stock footage. Uh, to splice in there with your miniatures, and, and this film does a good job of that as well. So, um, all right. So, after consulting with a biologist, Nagamine and Yonamore learn that the Gauss are genetically engineered and reproduce asexually. They speculate on the origins and purpose of Gauss and Gamera. Nagamine suggests that Gauss were awakened by rampant pollution and that Gamera was created to combat Gauss. They approach Kusanagi with this information, explaining that the incident at Mount Fuji shows that Asagi is spiritually linked with Gamera. Kusanagi dismisses these claims until he witnesses the amulet's power himself. So again, more fleshing out of the mythological origins of these creatures. And the, the, the idea that I really like from this whole sequence of them, you know, speculating on their origins, is the idea of Gamera and Gauss as artificial life forms, as genetically engineered and created organisms. Because, you know, when um, Gauss and Gamera in the Showa films were creatures that were on Earth that were dormant and were woken up. And it's hard to buy them all the strange things they can do. It's like, well, no living thing could do that, you know? It's like uh, with Gamera. It's like I'm willing to I'm willing to accept the breathing fire, but the rocket engines in his leg ports. That I'm sorry, that's a bridge too far. When you're talking about, yeah, this thing was alive at one point on just walking around prehistoric Earth, you know. Um, so adding this idea of they were designed this way, and so that the weapons and attacks that they have available to them are on purpose. That really just, that, that's like that head slap moment. It's like, of course it is. That, that's the perfect explanation for why these monsters are the way they are. It also goes to say that it also follows 
the idea of how they appear and the type of powers they have. Gauss is shown to be a, a being which, thanks to its asexuality and its low chromosome count, can produce and create an army of itself in, at a very rapid pace. But because and this caused them to go out of control and be a experiment that went wrong, and they had and the ancient Lantians had no choice but to create Gamera as a way to combat them. But they made sure to, to make not the, to not make the same, same mistake of Gamera going out of control, so they only ever make one of him. Mm. It's shown in the third film that there's an entire graveyard where old Gameras go to die with the assumption that a new one will spawn somehow, perhaps from an egg inside of the old Gamera or something. But they... The, they specifically created him with the idea of he will not only defeat the Gauss, but he will also never go out of control in a way that they, he overruns the world. Right. Crucial to that is his connection with, in this case, Asagi. That he has this human spirit that is bound to him. So he's not just a mindless monster. You know, uh, Gamera, you know, in Showa Arrow was the friend to all children. Here he is the guardian of the universe because he is intrinsically connected with a human. And so his motivations are going to be, you know, in, in part in line with the bond that is formed with this human. So, yeah, they, they you're right. They it's 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 not they don't come right out and say it. The implication is clear, like you say, that they didn't make the same mistakes twice. They, they went in a different direction and thus they've created this, um, you know, living engine whose purpose is to hunt down these threats. And that's what he's doing. And that's why he was so single-minded in Fukuoka and so single-minded at uh, Kiso Mountains. But, you know, at the same time, it was defend human life, which is why he defends them on the bridge as well. So it's, again, I, I'm all in favor of the changes to the origin here because I think it does uh, a really good job. One of just updating it and making it a bit more believable, but also just tying these monsters together. Rather than it just being, oh, there's randomly all these monsters on the Earth. Yeah, here, Gamera and Gauss, they have a shared origin. So they, it makes sense for them to be rivals and, and why they, you know, both have a, a similar uh, you know, skin texture or whatever you want to say. That they have a shared origin, so it makes sense for them to be, uh, you know, up, uh, here at the same time. And the, Asa the another way of looking at the Asagi Gamera connection is almost looking at it as if she's Pepper Potts and Gamera is Tony Stark. Mm. Left unchecked with his own intellect and what he can do with technology, Tony Stark could create creates Ultron in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Right. He needs Pepper Potts there to to keep him to remind him. You, despite what you can make, despite the fact you can create an armor, which can cut, which is like the highest technology on the planet and can make you invincible, you're still human, and I'm here to hold your hand and remind you you're human. Right. And even sometimes even the most powerful beings need that. Right. That's why Superman has Lois Lane. It reminds it. They powerful characters need the character that is around to keep them in check so they don't get uh, drunk on their own powers. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and if for the purposes of what the ancient 
Moo and Des Denizens did it. It seems to be working pretty well. So, with Gamera recovering in the ocean, the last Gauss grows unchecked, becoming a super Gauss. The creature attacks Tokyo, causing many civilian casualties and prompting the government to focus on Gauss instead of Gamera. Attempts to kill Gauss end in failure, and it builds a nest in the ruins of Tokyo Tower. Uh, I love this image. This is one of my favorite just single visual images from this entire trilogy. The silhouette of Gauss sitting in the ruins of Tokyo Tower, where you have this symbol of post-war Japan, of modern-day Japan, you know, that was built uh, at the beginning of the Showa era to, and, and after the war, and it was, you know, Japan stepping into the modern world that has been destroyed by their own, by Japan's own hubris, and then taken over by this creature from the far ancient world. It's, it, you know, you don't, you don't need a, uh, you know, you don't need to have gone to film school to kind of see the, the meaning here, but it's such a great shot with just the, the setting sun and the silhouette. And this whole, I mean, this whole bit of Gauss attacking Tokyo is just really sells, again, as you've said, the horror of Gauss as a monster. And again, going back to the attention to detail that we keep harping on, sorry, audience, we can't help it, but <laughs> throughout the entire trilogy, they cut back to Tokyo Tower and showcase it didn't simply go right back up in the next movie. They showcase that it's still on, under reconstruction, mm-hmm. the damage was that severe, and it's going to take, not, it won't be fixed overnight, because this was an insane amount of damage. Right. Mm-hmm. Time is, a, is actually factored into these films. Even later films, in advent of Legion, they showcase that despite saving the world uh, twice, saving the world once already and coming back from the dead, the military isn't quick to trust Gamera is, has appeared to save them. They, they're still under the assumption of he's a giant creature that can crush us with its feet. We can't simply uh, roll out the red carpet every time he shows up. Right. Yeah. We say, but verify, right? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So, as part of Gauss's attack, he swoops down and grabs a train car, and his talons rip through the walls of the train car. This, this kind of reminded me, from a visual standpoint, of the scene in Godzilla vs. Space Godzilla, where we see the shuttle with all of the crystals crashing through it. I actually think that, just from a dramatic standpoint, and then just an effects execution standpoint, that scene plays better in this film than it does in Space Godzilla, and also continues a time-honored tradition of Japanese giant monsters attacking trains, because we all know there's a lot of trains going different places in Japan, so it makes for a, a, uh, a, a frequent target. Also, well, with, the, uh, with Godzilla versus Space Godzilla, the crystals come in, you get static, you don't have any uh, connection with the victims of the destroyed shuttle, but right. here with this train car... You see a young couple sharing some headphones, and they're enjoying the music. And then after he flies away with the car into a, into the park and starts uh, ripping it open and eating them like sardines, you see Super Gauss uh, 
a little thing, a little object comes off the side of its mouth, it falls to the ground. It's the it's the headphones mm. they were just listening to. The couple is gone. They have been consumed by super gals. They they were probably just on their way on a date, listening to music, just on their way home after having dinner, and a giant monster eats them. They're it's a much it's simple, but it's a much more sympathetic uh, moment compared to just hey, random astronauts are dead because glowing things appeared. Right. Yeah. It's much more visceral in in this situation, and you talking about them, you know, Gauss ripping open the car and eating the occupants. That was my reference I mentioned earlier to the War of the Gargantuas, because famously in that film, Gyra. The green gargantua uh, likes to eat people, and that is how Sanda, the brown gargantua, knows that his brother is a bad dude when he finds all the remains of the clothing and everything else that Ga- that Gyra has been spitting out. So uh, it's just me, but anytime I see a daikaiju eating somebody, I always think of Gyra from War of the Gargantuas. Uh- <laughs> He made me afraid to go back into the water. He, he, Gyra's, Gyra's no joke, man. I mean, he takes down that ship. It's, it's crazy. But, but anyway, we'll get to War of the Gargantua some other time on, on Earth Destruction Directive. So, big finish coming up here. Upon awakening from her sleep, Asagi warns the others that Gamera has recovered and will attack Gauss. Gamera catches Gauss by surprise, destroying its nest and eggs. A massive air battle ensues, and Asagi... Kusanagi, Nagamine, and Yonamore follow closely in a helicopter. Initially, Gauss overpowers Gamera, but Asagi uses her spiritual energy to revive Gamera, who kills Gauss. Gamera then releases Asagi from their bond and returns to the sea. So we get here the big fight at the end. TB Fate, as we call it. And uh, it's a very good big fight at the end. And it starts off with... A very impressive entrance on the scene by Gamera as he comes up uh, underground. And we see the manhole cover launch off from the pressure underneath. And then all of the asphalt just split and crack apart as he pushes his way uh, up in towards uh, Tokyo Tower before he is revealed. I really like this. I, that, again, just the modeling work of seeing the streets actually you know, be cracked open like a walnut shell it's really something to see and from there we get an insane fight featuring a pile driver from outer space (laughs) which is just so incredible especially because as they're fighting Gamera gets Gauss into a lock, which he's not able to escape from, and Gauss realizes he's plummeting to the earth and has no choice but to sever his own foot mm. to uh, to break the hold and escape before being slammed into the earth. Oh, yeah. Just like a feral creature gnawing off its leg so it can escape a trap. Right. Yeah, I mean, you really get the the difference between Gamera and Gauss in this fight in that in that sequence well first up before that we get a, a very popular addition to Gamera as he grows out two blades from his elbows that curve back he looks a lot like the Giver you know any any fans of the Giver and the Giver two uh, out there 
Um, and I, I don't, classic. It is. I, I remember watching the Giver on Sci-Fi Channel back in the day. Actually, not probably around the same time I watched this on HBO. To be honest with you, uh, but uh, but anyway, the so he's got these 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 claw these you know claws, elbow blade claws, essentially. And I really like this because yes, Gamera has his claws and his teeth for fighting in close, but his main weapon is his fireball, which is a ranged weapon. So. Again, the ancient civilization, knowing he'd have to sometimes get in and do the dirty work up close, gave him a close-range weapon. And it's it's not just, oh, okay, you know, he's... it. it I mean, the way that they extend out, this is, again, it looks almost like Wolverine bone claws. You know, it's it's a... It, it, it's it's a designed weapon that they... that he has to fight with. So I really, I really like that, and that's a... Uh, an image that has caught on quite a bit uh, for Gamera, and I'm glad that, you know, that that's one that I like. But yeah, so with the your, so Gamera flies out, and and he actually heads out into the into the atmosphere and then up into low Earth orbit essentially, and Gauss chases him. And so now you see the difference here. Gauss is fighting like an animal; he's chasing after what he's trying to hurt. But Gamera is using tactics. He wants Gauss to chase him because he wants to get up so high, and then grab him and crash back down to Earth. So I, again, I like that the Gamera is is more thinking than the Gauss, which relies more on his instinct. And like you say, like a like a feral animal, like a, a a fox caught in a trap or something like that, he gnaws or not gnaws. A fox would gnaw his foot off, but here he blasts it off, and Gamera crashes in a huge, huge impact, and of course right into like a refinery, which all of that manages to explode as well, and suddenly we're in a gigantic. Uh, you know, conflagration right here in the middle of downtown Tokyo with flame everywhere. And, you know, it's like, oh my God, was, uh, you know, that, that's like, um, you know, that, that's like, uh, like God gets over his Geigen or something with all the refinery just getting ex- blown up and flame everywhere for, you know, the, a couple of minutes. Almost more like, uh, Godzilla versus Mechagodzilla, where as the flames, uh, where the flames consume him just like, Mechagodzilla's uh, is consumed by the flames that then burn off the fake Godzilla yeah. skin suit, mm-hmm. and there's the mechanical Godzilla underneath it all. Yes. Now, the, with all the flame energy, with all the fire and everything, all this thermal energy, I this this part I really liked again because one of Gamera's traits that he always has had is that he feeds on fire and heat to the point that. You know, like in uh, Godzilla vs. or Gamma versus Berrigan, we actually see him literally eating flames, sucking up the flames after he destroys the the dam, and that is essentially what we get here because we see all of this fire, all this thermal energy, just being directed towards him, and he starts get. You can see the power building in him. So all that heat, all that fire, is you know, it's it's like you've you know if you you have made me more powerful than you can possibly imagine. So, you know, and, and that all gets channeled into the, the one final blow, you know, the, the fatality, the uh, advance art, whatever you want to call it, whatever, you know, fighting game you subscribe to, Super Move here, and that mega fireball that is just absolutely, there's nothing left in the tank after that. You know it's every ounce of energy he has to make sure there's no way Gauss is walking away from this, and it's just kablam, you know? That's all there is at that point, just kablam. And again, and it's just so exp- 
explosive. It just, they are both uh, getting ready to charge their attacks, but Gamera has consumed more energy than Gauss and is knows that he has to, if he is able to, if he's able to shoot quick enough, he'll, the the ball will destroy Gauss before Gauss's uh, sonic ray slices off Gamera's head. Mm-hmm. Yeah. More quick thinking on his part. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And, you know, d- doing what's got to be done. You know, Gamera's job is to, is to, to you know, defend humanity. And that's going to do it right now is to kill Gauss. So that's what he does. And there's no, you know, there, there's, there's no question about that he's, he's in this fight. Absolutely. And it's, again, it, it really speaks to the heroic nature of this character, you know, especially when compared to, especially the Heisei Godzilla, who was not, he, he was always like the lesser of two evils, you know? He was, uh, he was, okay, it's like Godzilla's bad, but, you know, Batra is worse. King Ghidorah is worse, you know? So, so that, in that case. Whereas here, Gamera, once again, as was his want for the majority of his original films, he plays the hero and he does uh, he saves the day as a good hero should in the final reel. Uh, I also like that even though this was always intended to be a series, uh, there as as from everything I've ever read, there was always the intention of making a series. I whether it was three films or not, uh, I, I'm you know always intended to be three films. That I don't know, but this was all this was never meant to be a standalone film. But I do like that they make the ending work in a standalone capacity because Asagi no longer has that spiritual connection to Gamera and Gamera returns to the sea. If you just watch this, this film, you get a complete story. You get a beginning, a middle, and an end. And with the, of course, open end of that, well, Gamera could come back because they'd say, well, there's all, there, there could be all sorts of monsters out there that there could be Gauss anywhere, you know, and Gamera will be there to stop them. But I do like, I did like that. I, I, I like stories that have, that take enough of a risk to actually give you a, an ending, a, a real ending, even if they know they're going to make a sequel, rather than just, you know, always setting up the sequel and saying, well, you know, you think he beat him, but he didn't. Dun, dun, dun. Now it's like, okay, the Gauss are defeated, the day is saved, and Asagi is relieved of her duty, and Gamma returns to the sea. That wraps things up pretty well. And, even then, you know, if you don't, if you aren't sure and not catch it, you can, it can look like, uh, the setup for the sequel. Because right. until recently, I didn't, uh, put two and two that Asagi wasn't just, uh, this wasn't a, okay, good fight, partner, uh, see you next time. This was a full on, you've served your purpose, uh, I thank you, here's your wounds healed, I'm gone. Yeah. Take care, love. And it's just like, wait, what? Yeah. And just like, because I really thought that the power that Asagi had would just simply turn on the next time Gamera got into a major battle. But right. no, she is officially, Gamera is willing to officially dismiss her as his priestess because he doesn't want to see her get hurt anymore. Right. Yeah. They fought, they fought, she thinks he's fought hard enough, he's learned enough to, for what he believes will be enough to take out the initial gauss threat uh that could appear in the world and he doesn't need his priestess anymore to to receive any more pain and suffering because of it mm-hmm. yeah and i didn't realize this uh coming out of it but it makes so much more sense especially in the ne- next time we see uh asagi in advent of legion 
she is clutching the amulet, but I, I, and I thought, oh, she's talking with him. But then I, you watch the scene, you realize the amulet is never glowing. She's ne Gamera never really is uh, communicating with her, and she's receiving none of his injuries, which right. I just thought that that was from the he had turned off the connection enough that she would never have to feel the pain anymore, not realizing that she's just desperately trying to hold on to it, hoping it will work again. She doesn't have her priestess powers anymore to communicate with Gamera. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, I, I think you can read it either way, which I think is, is it, it's, it's just ambiguous enough that you could read it either as, okay, we're turning the connection off or the connection is gone. But either way, I, I think it, it still works as actually giving the film an ending, and I, and I like that quite a bit. Yes, um, not even it's not until the second ending where you where it's uh, where it's confirmed through the idea that she is that she the amulet doesn't seem to be working anymore. Right. That she doesn't have the power. A sequel helps to spell out what the ambiguity of the first film, and that's exactly what a, what it should do. It just you know, it'll present you with something. If you want to take it one way or another, there's no harm in doing it. But if they want to use the element in the second season, in the sequel, they spell out exactly what it means. And they do it very well here. Yes. It's, it's just it's just one more thing, like I said, that when we've been saying for however long we've been, been talking about this, that is just done so well about, about this movie and how much of it just, just works on every level. I mean, I, I have... This is the first time I had watched this in at least a few years, and I had no complaints, none whatsoever. So, you know, I was just real, real impressed with it. Now, um, after listening to us go on for about an hour or so about how good this movie is, you're saying to yourself, you know, I think I'd like to buy this film. <laughs> so uh, if you want to purchase Gamera Guardian of the Universe, you got a few options. I think the best option for the money is probably the Gamera Trilogy Blu-ray set which is, uh, as of this recording, is about uh, 1777 on Amazon. That has Guardian of the Universe and its two sequels, Advent of Legion and Awakening of Eris, uh, all on Blu-ray for uh, about 18 bucks. And that I have that set, and I tell you, the transfers are really nice on that set. They, they made the uh, transition to HD very nicely. I always make it a point to uh, advocate the buying of Blu-rays for kaiju films. I mean, yes, thanks to the higher definition, there's a chance, such as with the Showa era, where you can see uh, a wire or two, but the detail comes up so well, it's insane. One of the things, what, the, what made me... Uh, become firm with this idea was watching the Blu-ray transfer of Godzilla vs. Hedorah. Mm -hmm. When you actually see it properly lit through HD and see uh, the attention to the color, you see that Godzilla's hand throughout all the fights and from fighting with Hedorah's uh, against Hedorah's acid has actually eroded to the point the bone is starting to see through. Right. He is that damage yeah. yes there's a yes you might see a wire or two but with with a good blu-ray you can see attention to detail which will make up for it in other ways more than enough oh absolutely I, I agree and and i've i've mentioned the model work a few times you know my my brother and my dad are the real big models but i i do a little bit so i can always appreciate the really 
fine model work and the Blu-rays for these Daikaiju films. Sometimes it's just like you just want to pause and just look at the models getting destroyed, you know, because just the attention and the scale of all of these, you know, metropolises essentially that they're building just to be smashed down, you know, and it, it's, it's, it really is. I agree. The Blu-ray format, the, you know, it, it's funny. Two things I'm an enthusiast for, um, took their time embracing high def for much the same reason. Daikaiju was one of them, and eventually they jumped in kind of whole hog. And now, as I'll mention in a minute, it's actually easier to find a lot of these films on Blu-ray than DVD. The other was wrestling. Re- you know, professional wrestling hesitated to go to HD because of the concern that the higher resolution would make their working look really light, and it wouldn't look as realistic as it did on standard definition. And it took basically, you know... Vince McMahon doing a couple of years worth of studying with all his video guys and all that to figure out how they could shoot it so that it would still, the, the boys would still look good working. So I just, you know, it's one of the weird coincidences that something like that, but yes, absolutely. The Blu-rays for this set are, are, are very, very nice. And again, getting all three of these movies for less than 20 bucks, that, that's a pretty good deal where I come from. Now, if you can't do Blu-ray, the DVDs are out there, but they are harder to find because I believe they are out of print. Uh, but I saw some listings used on Amazon starting at about $8 for the set. So again, that's not, that's not bad at all. Uh, if you have Amazon Prime, uh, you can watch it for free with English sub on Prime Video on Shout Factory's channel. Shout Factory, a, uh, you know, well-known name in genre, uh, film circles nowadays for releasing a very high quality product for a lot of, uh, a lot of genre work, both, um, you know, not just, they, you know, they, they've done their Daikaiju, but they've also done a lot of stuff with like Jerry Anderson and their horror stuff over at Screen Factory. So they, they do good work. And if you want to go whole hog, you can get the Gamera 11 film collection Blu-ray set, which has all 11 of the Gamera films. So that's all eight of the Showa films and the three Heisei films does not include Gamera the Brave, which at the time was not available in the U.S., uh, but all of the first 11 Gamera films for ninety nine seventy seven on Amazon, that's, uh, you know, just about 10 bucks a film. That's pretty good for Blu-ray, you know, especially those, uh, those Showa ones, which also look very nice on, on Blu-ray. You talk about the attention to detail. They, those films have never looked better. Uh, they do there. So you have some options if you want to, uh, if you, if you want to watch Guardian of the Universe. Like I said, this, because this film played on video and cable in the U.S., I've, I've talked to quite a few people over the years that have a lot of fond memories of this from watching it on HBO or renting it from their local video store. So I think there's a lot of fond memories of this film. And, you know, sometimes with fond memories of, of something, you go back and you watch it like, wow, okay, that didn't hold up. This is not the case at all. This holds up really, really well, pretty much across the board. About the only thing that's a little suspect are some of the fashions, but you know, hey, it was the 90s. You do what you got to do, right? So. But overall, yeah, I mean, that this, this was a lot of fun to revisit this and just see that, yeah, the way I felt back then when I was in high school, I still feel about it now. It's just a superlative effort all around. I can, I easily find myself at least once a year watching the Gamera Trilogy because they're just that good. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, so, uh, I... You know, uh, I, I think that says it all right there. They're just that good. So please, if you haven't seen Gamma Guardian Universe, or maybe it's been a few years, check it out. There, there's great options available, great discs out there. Uh, go use the 
Um, go to twotruefreaks.com, hit that amazon.com link, and then anything you buy during that session of Amazon will get a little kickback here. It won't cost you anything extra. Helps keeps the light, uh, lights on here at uh, Two True Freaks uh, and Earth Destruction Directive. Now, when you head over to Amazon to go buy those Blu-ray sets, you might also want to jump over to the book side for just a second. And you might want to check out a little book called The Handbook for Surviving a Giant Monster Attack. Written by some guy named Anthony Wendell. <laughs> um, I, I saw the title of this book and I said, I'm intrigued. And so I clicked on the link and I, uh, I went down and this is the description of the book. And you, you guys, you guys and girls out there, you tell me if you're listening to Earth Destruction Directive that this description won't get you, your interest at least peaked just a little bit. Are you unsure how to deal with a rampaging, mutated, 50 foot tall monster destroying your city and terrorizing your friends and family? Can't tell which vehicle is best for getting away from a Tyrannosaurus Rex? Curious about the side effects of different monster-destroying destroy, weaponry? Then you picked up the right book. And uh, so, Anthony, you've, you've written this, this wonderful book about uh, how to survive in, a, in a, uh, a giant monster attack, which, you know, pays to be prepared. So tell me, how did you come up with the concept of, of working on this book? I had read uh, the Zombie Survival Guide and other books that were preparing people for disasters, and I just, I never found one for giant monsters. But at the same time, after always uh, adding just a little bit of real-world sensibility to some of these films, I thought to myself, well, if this were happening, I'd do that totally differently. And then before I knew it, I had a whole book of ways that were the proper method of uh, surviving events. Mm -hmm. Very, very cool indeed. And and so I, I am, I, I have this book. I haven't had a chance to read it, unfortunately, uh, I am a, a fairly slow reader at this point in my life. I used to be able to read much faster, but, uh, you know, uh, a, a job and a wife and four kids and all that, 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 that will slow you down a little bit on, on your pleasure reading. But I have picked this up, and I think that if you're listening to this show, you, you would most likely enjoy this book also. So like I said, head over to Amazon. You can get a print edition, or you can get an ebook for your uh, uh, Amazon Kindle, and uh, very cool-looking book. So please go check that out and... Uh, uh, you know, make sure you're prepared just in case, you know, Titanosaurus pops up in your neck of the woods for some random reason or whatever. Uh, Anthony, this was a lot of fun. Thank you very much for, for coming on and joining me tonight. Um, why don't you uh, give the listeners um, a rundown of where else they can find you uh, and the other stuff you work on? Well, I'm uh, my author profile is uh, at Anthony Wendell on Twitter. I always like to post some of the articles I'm writing and uh, how I'm doing with different writing projects. I'm also still actively working for the Geek News website, monkeysfightingrobots.com, where I serve as the anime editor. I actually just got done with uh, a review for the My Hero Academia movie, Two Heroes, which was very enjoyable, and I highly recommend uh, fans going to check it out while it's in theaters. Yeah, my, there, there's a couple of people online talking about My Hero Academia. I hear about that every now and again. <laughs> it's It really is a good show. It it really is, yes. And I, I do have to say, I'm too proud to admit, uh, I really very much like Mount Lady. Just going to put that out there. <laughs> 
She has an incredible entrance. Oh my gosh, that first appearance of Mount Lady, that is the stuff of anime legend, as far as I am concerned. Oh boy, but, uh, oh, so, very cool. So, guys, I'm going to put links to the Twitter and Monkeys Fighting Robots in the uh, show notes, as well as a link to the handbook for surviving a giant monster attack, so you can check that stuff out. Anthony, want to thank you once again for joining us. This has been a blast. We'll have to get back together and do Advent of Legion at some point. It's good. All right. And uh, at this time, I'd also like to give a big thank you to all of you listeners out there. Remember that this show exists because of you, and, and I appreciate each and every one of you listeners. All are welcome at Earth Destruction Directive. So uh, we are going to sign off, um, and until next time, keep them stomping. This has been Earth Destruction Directive, a Dai Kaiju podcast, produced and created by me, Luke Giaconetti, as part of the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network, available at twotruefreaks.com. This is a fan work celebrating the history and culture of Japanese giant monsters. All movies, TV shows, comic books, characters, and other intellectual property is copyright their respective copyright holders, and no infringement is intended or implied. If you'd like to send an email to the show, you can email me at earthdestructiondirective at yahoo.com. I respond to all emails, and if you send in some comments, I'll read them on the show. All episodes of Earth Destruction Directive can be found at twotruefreaks.com. You can also find the show on iTunes. Just search for Earth Destruction Directive. You can even leave an iTunes review if you want. You can get in touch with the show on Facebook. Just search for Earth Destruction as the first name and Directive as the last name. You can also get in touch with me on Twitter with the handle LJacone. That's L-J-A-C-O-N-E. And if you want to buy something discussed on the show, head on over to twotruefreaks.com and click on the Amazon.com link on the front page. Any items you buy during your session on Amazon.com will help keep the lights on, and it won't cost you anything extra. Thanks for listening, and be sure to come back next time for more city-stomping fun on Earth Destruction Directive. Tune in next time to hear the crusty old podcaster from Oklahoma say, There's a WTF <laughs> moment if I ever saw one. Well, it's big and terrible. More frightening than I ever thought possible.